I ended up being stabbed with probably just a small screwdriver. I had to essentially fight for my life in that situation. I ended up being stabbed in the neck, the face, the nose just outside the eye. Um, They wanted me to supply them with 200,000 E's in exchange for a quarter of a tonne of soap bar. Now, they didn't say it outright to Ben, but they intimated to him that they'd had this person killed. There was a quite a lengthy operation on me and my co-defendants, Operation Sculpture, um, conducted by a national crime squad. And the upshot was that it was SO19, all balaclavered up, um, bulletproof bullet vests and, and all the rest of it. And we were nicked. An SO19 came round the pillar, clocked me, swung round. I had the barrel of the gun inches from my nose and... My daughter, she was six then. I, I made a decision right away to tell her and I said, Daddy's been a really naughty boy. This is prison. Daddy's going to be here for a while. Excuse me. And it doesn't mean I don't love you. Hope you're enjoying our podcast. Here's a word from our sponsor, uh, Up. And before this one even came in, Jen was already gagging to try this product, weren't you, Jen? I was literally going to purchase it before they sent it, and they sent us five wonderful flavours. So today I'm going to sample the apple flavour. And how it works is through the sense of smell. So instead of having a drink that's flavoured with all that rubbish in it, you are getting activated through the olfactory receptors in your nose, and you are thinking if there's flavours in the drink, but it's not, but it's... Like, takes your senses to a whole new dimension. And it's wild because you're not drinking disgusting fizzy drinks. So this is perfect for the gym. And for Christmas, the new chocolate orange flavour is out. And if you go to the website, you can check out the Christmas bundles. This is at Erop's website. Link in the description box. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Delicious, isn't it? Isn't it? Oh, watering at the mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Right, so I will show you how to use this simple pod, is you just pop it over the nozzle here, and you lift it up till it naturally stops. Oh yes, try some of that. I like that you were desperate, try some of that. (laughs) The flavour's intense as well, isn't it? Why do you think this would make the perfect Christmas gift, Jen? Because you always overindulge over Christmas and you know what it's like in the January period. You all want to lose weight. Turkey burners at the gym. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I mean, this bottle is absolutely awesome. It's my new gym bottle, so thanks. Thanks, guys. Link is in the description box below this video. Thank you for supporting our sponsor. Back to the podcast. All right, I've been inundated with people saying you've got to check out Pierce on TikTok and I have been checking out Pierce on TikTok and oh my goodness 
talk about storytelling ability and just the massive amount of stories. I'm hoping this will be part of a podcast series because there's just so much content. And I'm also hoping that Pierce is going to get his book out, at least the trilogy. He's crowdfunding for volume one of 9 million presently. Link is going to be in the description box. Link for the TikTok will be in the description box, socials, etc. Please support his work because we've not had many people who've just got out of prison who've jumped right on a podcast with us. And Pierce, you've only released in April, weren't you, man? Yeah, end of April, 21st, yeah. Well, huge thank you for coming on so soon. Thanks for having me. Appreciate that. And we like to start out with a hard-hitting story to, you know, engage the viewers from the get-go. And you were telling me earlier there was a arrest story back in 2003. Yeah, um, as it turned out, there was a quite a lengthy operation on me and my co-defendants, Operation Sculpture, um, conducted by National Crime Squad. And the upshot was my arrest alongside two co-defendants in uh, in a warehouse in West Byfleet um, near Woking. In the build-up to that, um, my one of my co-defendants, Ben, uh, called me up and he asked me whether I would be able to do a trade with some people that were... Uh, getting drugs from him via me. Um, they wanted me to supply them with 200,000 E's in exchange for a quarter of a ton of soap bar. And I did a quick uh, mental arithmetic and I thought, yeah, we can do this. Um, I'd had two brief meetings with these guys who turned out to be undercover National Crime Squad. Um after the first meeting, I immediately in the car back um, with Ben grilled him about how he knew these guys. Um, he said, look, they're, they're brand new. They're good as gold. They've been getting a lot of work from me for about six months now. They pay cash for everything. They had, in fact, bought things like nine, but nine uh, ounces of 5,000 pills They'd even bought a couple of high-value stolen cars, which we were also trading. So I kind of, that put me at ease to, you know, relatively speaking, I was kind of unsure about them. There was something going on somewhere in the back of my head. But probably I let the financial aspect kind of um, smokescreen that to an extent. Um. In the in the time before the actual trade was due to take place, they spoke to Ben again and they asked him to um, check out a, a driving license, uh, a number plate for them. And we had uh, a, a young lady who was a PNC civilian um, worker. She, in exchange for a little bit of this and a little bit of that, would check certain things, mostly for Ben, but obviously for me as well. And um, she ran the number plate and Ben called me a couple of weeks later and said, we need to get this deal done. We really need to get this deal done now. They're all over me. And I said, well, calm down. What's the matter? And he said, well, 
I've just had a call from Steve, was the name of one of the undercovers. Uh, he said that, um, as it turned out, the number plate had, had was registered to HMRC um, Revenue and Customs. Now, they didn't say it outright to Ben, but they intimated to him that they'd had this person killed. And, by the way, when we're doing this drug deal, so Ben... I wouldn't say he panicked, but he he wanted to get things resolved. He felt like they were leaning on him and p- perhaps indicating to him that things may or may not go the same way. So I said to him, look, calm down. Um, what we're going to do is we'll get this done and then I'm going to give you a lump of money and you're going to take your girlfriend and you're going to go travelling and by the time you get back, these lot will have gone. They'll have just, you know, disappeared. Um, so that's that was the plan. And uh, I got the the two hundred thousand E's together, and we met them. And um, they took us in a convoy to their warehouse. I drove in. Uh, one of my drivers he lost us in the convoy and was kind of, he just parked himself up um, sort of a mile or so away. Um, I was in the back of their van smashing bars of soap with a lighter, checking them for quality. And I just heard a very faint noise, someone shouting. At first I ignored it, then it got louder and then there were multiple voices I jumped out of the van. Me and Ben ran to the back of the warehouse. It was kind of Keystone Cops. There was nowhere to go. And the upshot was that it was SO19, all balaclavered up, um, bulletproof bullet vests and and all the rest of it. And we were nicked. And um, I can remember people do ask me about this. I I was handcuffed. Actually... Where we'd been bouncing around, I I ended up behind a a pillar, of a brick pillar, and they hadn't they didn't have me. They had Ben in their sights, red dots all over him. They they screamed at him to get on the floor. Then they realised he'd got he by getting on the floor he'd gone behind a car, so they couldn't see him. So they screamed at him to stand up again, and he was there. And all of a sudden an SO-19 came round the pillar, clocked me, swung round. I had the barrel of the gun inches from my nose. And to this day, I'm kind of glad that he didn't have a hair trigger or was a bit nervous because probably he would have blown my brains out. So we were nicked. My driver, Danny, who was lost but down the road, the the first thing he knew was that an unmarked car drove at speed towards him and T-barred his car. He thought we were being robbed. SO19 got out and put him on the floor with guns to his head. And uh, and that was it. Um, I was then flown, uh, driven in convoy um, to Guildford Police Station. I had an armed either side of me, helicopter, a car in front, a car behind and I was taken into Guildford Police Station and put in front of the Assistant Chief Constable of Surrey Police, who informed me that he was the highest-ranked officer available 
and that had to be the case so that he could tell me that I was being held incommunicado. I wasn't allowed to call anybody. I wasn't allowed to ask for a solicitor. And, um, yeah, so that was a day that completely changed my life. And um, So not many people have been in this situation, and they're probably wondering, when that gun was put to your head, like, what happens this time slow does it go fast as i what thought processes are involved um i i think probably the overriding thought was to stay still uh because it was kind of it was it wasn't br- brightly lit in there and i just thought any movement uh, anything could happen i was wrapped up very quickly they threw me on the floor jumped on me um put me in handcuffs behind my back but yeah I, I I do remember very clearly that when they finally stood me up and they marched me to another part of the warehouse I had this amazing um wave of tranquility come over me I knew my life as I knew it was completely dead and buried and I knew it instantly and I I just um yeah I just stood there in kind of somehow in in kind of peace um and yeah, I remember that really clearly. It stayed with me for 20 years. What were you charged with? Well, on the final indictment at the Old Bailey, I had, there were 10, 10 of us all together. Some of them I didn't actually know. I'd never met them. I was charged on the final indictment. There were 52 counts involving the 10 people and 26 of them were me. The substantives, as as my QC called them, were conspiracy to supply Class A. I think there were two counts of that. I had about three or four counts of cons- um, possession of firearms. Originally, that was with intent to endanger life because the guns I had were loaded with one in the chamber. Um other things were conspiracy supply class B. I think I was originally charged with conspiracy to pervert the course of justice as well. I pleaded guilty to the 11 substantives and 15 charges were left on file. So how long were you on remand for? Well, I was. we were originally remanded to hide down in Surrey. Um, our case was... Um, moved very quickly to the Old Bailey. We did about 10 days in high down and then we were <laughs> we were taken to Belmarsh slightly under duress. We'd heard a lot of negative things. I'd never been in trouble before, so it was all new to me. People in those 10 days in high down were saying, don't go to Belmarsh, do not go there. So we tried to get out of it and at our first appearance at the Old Bailey, we did manage to blag our way back to High Down, but about three days later, they came for us. It was about six in the morning. Uh, the officer at the door, I was the only one awake at that time, and he said, look, you, you and you, pack your stuff, you're going to Belmarsh. And I said, no, no, we've been we've been brought back to High Down. We're supposed to be here. And he said, look, here's the deal. You can walk to reception or we can carry you in handcuffs and we'll open every gate with your heads. So it was a no-brainer. We 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 got ourselves together and we were moved to Belmarsh. That's interesting that you were in so deep and you said you'd never been in trouble before. So your first day then 
was high down was it yeah what was that like adapting uh it was it was difficult it's i've over the years now i've kind of likened it to being put in a helicopter with with uh, a with your eyes covered and dropped in a foreign country where you have no concept of the culture the language <laughs> and yeah that's how it was it was the biggest learning curve of my life without a doubt and um take us through it then slowly so we were remanded from woking magistrates court um there were at the time three of us me um ben and danny danny had been my best friend since we were about 16 i felt awful because he'd only worked for me for about two weeks and um he was a plasterer by trade i believe he still is a plasterer shout out to you man yeah that's unlucky <laughs> yeah it was awful um so we were transferred in a sweat box to um to hide down spent quite a lot of the evening in reception being dealt with and processed and then were you mingling with other prisoners at that point I, there were some in the holding rooms but i i just went to my usual kind of default setting i didn't speak to anyone i just stood in the corner we were i think all three of us felt that kind of um i wouldn't say good luck but it was a bonus that we were three together we knew each other well so we weren't there to be picked off we were a little tight unit and we looked we looked after each other and um we worry about people listening to your conversations to an extent yeah uh especially as time moved forward when we when we were in belmarsh we not necessarily me but i guess i kind of latched onto it a bit i think it was ben really who was kind of not paranoid but mindful of the fact that our cell could be bugged we did end up eventually in a three up together and um yeah, you you have to be careful what you say and where you say it in prison, definitely. All right, so you're in reception at High Down. Yeah. And where do you go next on that first day? So I was processed and around about nine o'clock at night, this was in March, so it was just kind of twilight. I was I had a plastic plate of cold food chucked in my hand and I had a bed pack under the other arm. Marched to the induction wing in High Down and taken onto the wing. A door was opened. It was completely black inside. The screw put the light on and this person rolled over in his bed, uncovered his head from the blanket, looked at me like I was a piece of uh, excrement, turned back over and I walked in. The, the door was slammed behind me. I um I ate very quietly and I tiptoed to the toilet afterwards and <laughs> I remember this guy really well. His name was Matt. I I opened the door to the toilet cubicle and I smelt the most vile and offensive smell. I've never experienced anything like it since. I didn't know what it was. I had a quick, quiet wee. I gently tiptoed back to the bed. I, I remember sitting there for a while just kind of trying to process everything that had gone on in the last few days it was absolute chaos uh i thought about my daughter and my mum and all the people that i'd let down 
it was difficult. I went to sleep and in the morning I was up early and I went to the toilet and it was Matt's trainers that were producing this just horrific, I've like I say, never before, never since. And um, he turned out to be an all right guy. He was actually just arrested for a, 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 a kind of botched robbery on his local Tesco petrol station just around the corner from his house. He was a drug addict and he was going to be detoxing, so he was quickly moved to another part of the wing to, to carry on that. So you said you were thinking about your loved ones. Yeah. Did you take action to contact them and let them know what was happening? To be honest, they all knew right away. It was where we were. It was kind of a big deal. It was on the radio. The police were making a big hoo-ha about it in in the local sort of press. And, um, yeah, I, I think they probably found out before I, I was in Comunicado for about... Mm, three days so by the time i could contact anyone they already knew everything or more or less everything so who was the first person you contacted i i would imagine well the first person i had contact with was my then girlfriend who although everybody arrested there were 43 raids once they had me in handcuffs they used over 500 police officers across three counties Every person arrested was taken to an individual police station and no other arrested person in that police station except my then girlfriend who happened to be in Guildford Police Station and they walked me past her on my way to my first interview in the custody suite, bawling. Her mum's house had been turned upside down. So I... She said, I love you as, as I walked past and I I didn't actually say anything I couldn't bring myself to. I was I was in shock and I was angry, really angry because I knew the truth. And I knew even then in my kind of um, novice state, I knew what they were doing. And yeah, they succeeded in a way. First conversation with your mum, what was that like? My mum was brilliant. I had a visit in Highdown with her, my daughter and my daughter's mum. It must have been heavy. It was heavy. Uh, it wasn't very long. The visit only lasted about 35 minutes. But And I was kind of trying to... Well, I was. I was just um, keeping my head up. And I said to my mum... Whatever happens, I'll do it standing on my head. Don't worry about me. My daughter, she was six then. I I made a decision right away to tell her. And I said, Daddy's been a really naughty boy. This is prison. Daddy's going to be here for a while. Excuse me. And it doesn't mean I don't love you. But it was hard. Yeah, it was hard. And as you can see, remembering it now, it's still hard. Did you know what time you were facing at that point? The police um, in in Guildford Police Station um, thoroughly enjoyed telling me I was getting twenty five years, and um, and 
because I was such a greenhorn then, I, I believed that 25 years was the amount of time I would spend in prison. So I was sitting there thinking, I'm going to be 55. When I get out, my daughter's going to be 30, probably a mother, married. So again, it was difficult to kind of digest and process that, but I learned quick and I, I researched and tried to put some perspective on all of it. But that kept you awake at night initially. Oh, yeah, it did. And I kind of slipped into one or two habits that were completely pointless, but they somehow, I think, gave me some comfort. And I've mentioned this on a on a TikTok video recently that I took, I had a journal, a daily journal, and I just kind of, I took to flicking through the pages and stopping. And that day of that month would be my sentence. And some days it was 30 years, say June the 30th. Some days it was June the 10th. And I somehow, when it landed on June the 10th, I would get some comfort from it. But I knew I was banging trouble. And as it turned out, I was so. With your girlfriend then, did they release her or was she kept as well? She was released pending further investigation. She was bailed and we I was 100% confident that that was just for the purposes of them doing what they did to me psychologically. Um, she, she was finally told no further action and that was um, her to, to get on with her life. It's, to whatever extent so did you have a legal strategy like money aside for a lawyer or anything like that no no i had nothing put away um the police in fact when i was shown to my very first cell at guildford police station they opened the door and there was a guy already sitting in the cell with a suit and he stood up and he said Hello, Piers. My name's Gary Parkin. I will be dealing with the confiscation of every asset you've got. And I did, even then, I just thought, I haven't actually been charged with anything yet. And I don't think I said it, but maybe he read my facial expression. He said to me, trust me, we will be getting everything. And his, I kind of just stood there in sort of stunned silence, really, uh, he didn't stay long. He just said to me his sort of parting words were, I'll do you a favour, Piers. Don't F with me and I won't F with you. And he went to shake my hand as well and I was in no mood to shake anybody's hand at the time. So he left and, yeah, he did deal with asset stripping me, yeah. How did you get legal representation? My legal representation was a duty solicitor and I stayed with him through the whole thing. He was actually a family lawyer, but I just felt a kind of instant rapport with him. I said to him the day I met him, tell me the truth, Gerald. I only want to hear the truth. I don't want to hear guesstimates. I don't want to hear if it all goes well. Just tell me the truth. And he did. And uh, he stayed with me throughout. And I... I'm really 
disappointed in myself because I wanted to see him when I got out the first time and I just kind of never got round to it. He's retired now. I'd love to find him. Um, and hopefully sooner rather than later I will, but I stuck with him. I just felt comfortable. And the truth of it is I knew from day one that I was gone. There was no, there was no circumnavigation of the reality. I was banging trouble. I had to accept it and I just had to deal with what was in front of me and Gerald helped me do that. So, all right. So can you remember more of the conversation you had with him in the beginning? So you said to him, tell you the truth. What did he say? What was the truth? He said to me initially that he hadn't actually been told the full extent um, of everything. And I think I probably told him this is what the full extent will be because it's, I said it's if it's National Crime Squad. They're going to find my lockup. They're going to go to my house, and this is what they will find. And so I probably, I would imagine he said, yeah, you're bang in trouble, mate. And, yeah, we went from there. Did he give you a, project, a projection at some point on how many years you were facing? <laughs> he did, um, but actually he, he left that more to um, Grace Amachi, who who was my barrister, my QC. She's now a judge. Um, we, we all knew we were in trouble. And I, I think at one point, Gerald said to me, you, you're probably on guilt, guilty, please. You're probably going to get 20 years. Um, I remember something that kind of amused me. I was waiting to be sentenced. The, the wait for sentencing was actually a year and a half. And he came to see me in, in Belmarsh and he just said, look, he said, when you do actually hear the number from the judge, just don't be surprised if your legs start to buckle a bit. And I said, Gerald, I'll be standing tall and strong, mate. You you won't have to worry about me <laughs> flopping in the dock. I'll be all right. And And I was... And, you know, but again, I appreciate the kind of human aspect of that from him. He, we liked each other and he, he wanted, he wanted me to get the best result possible. And, you know, I appreciated that. Sounds like you got lucky with him. Did you go to trial? I didn't go to trial. There was never any point where I thought I would. I knew that I... Even Gerald and Grace, they both spelled it out to me. It didn't need spelling out to me. I, I knew that there was no way out. So it was always a question of damage limitation. After I was sentenced, I I did spend time, and I still do spend time occasionally thinking, would I have really got 27 years? Who knows? I don't believe I would have if I'd gone to trial, but I do believe that I probably would have been walloped by the judge for wasting court time. Definitely. So, so you were on remand for how long? Well, I, I pleaded guilty after six months in, in Belmarsh, but I had to wait another year to be sentenced. And actually the judge wanted to delay that another six months because I had one co-defendant who was going to trial one of my driver's, uh, Mark, who was also a a long term friend of mine, 
Personally, I didn't agree with him going to trial because I, I just thought you're going to be found guilty, mate. You, again, damage limitation. But he was determined. He went to trial. He was found guilty. Um, he got a little bit more than Danny, who was the driver who pleaded guilty. Um, so, yeah, I, I could have waited two years, but my, my QC stood up when the judge said on the day... It was the day that everyone else pleaded guilty. The judge said, right, I'm going to send Mark to trial in six months and I will sentence everyone when that's uh, dealt with. My my QC stood up and said, with respect, Your Honour, my, my client has been already waiting a year to be sentenced. And he was good about it. He said, okay, all of you lot, 28 days, come back and I'll sentence you all. So it took... Uh, 19 months to finally be sentenced. Was it actually a relief then on your sentencing day to get sentenced? Yeah, without a doubt, because that limbo is awful. You know, you spend a lot of your time pondering what the potential outcomes are going to be, and it's not very good for your sort of state of mind. So, yeah, I was relieved. I The sentencing itself lasted two days, Ben is a real optimist and Ben was in a lot of trouble as well after the first morning we went up to the holding room at the old Bailey and I just said to him look Ben I will take their arm off all day for a 15 right now and he said no 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 you're going to get 10 years I'm going to get seven I said Ben have you been listening to what's going on down there I feel like I'm the Yorkshire Ripper Honestly, it was like going to trial. The pros were tearing absolute strips off me. And I, yeah, I just, I knew then that, yeah, we're going to get walloped here badly. When the final number was given to me by the judge, um, I was told to sit down. I sat there and I wanted to then hear what he had to say. I do have now a, a copy of the transcript of his sentencing remarks for me. Uh, it's interesting to to read what is said because it, in some ways you know yourself and it doesn't necessarily sound like you, but ultimately I guess it was. It's just when it's there in black and white, it's why I didn't read all of the boxes of evidence that were being sent to me in Belmarsh. I knew I was going guilty. I read some of it initially it was a horror show and I just I couldn't bring myself to read anymore I just thought oh you know I don't need to know this I feel bad enough as it is boxes used to arrive and I used to just throw them straight in the bin on the landing just didn't bother looking so he said you're sentenced to x years what went through your head at that point well uh, kind of the person I am I just started doing calculations right when am I getting out? What am I going to do? What were the exact calculations? Well, I worked out very quickly that by the time I was sentenced, I'd already served around about 20% of what I would have to serve. And I felt a comfort in that. Uh, there was a chunk of it already behind me. Uh, I knew that it was a long way to go. And I knew that I, I had at this time 
uh, just come off the book. So I wasn't cat A anymore. Um, I knew that I was going to a category B and, and yeah, I was just kind of thinking about the, the immediate future and some of the long-term future. But I think mostly at the time I was just dealing with the present and just taking it a day at a time. Did people speak on your behalf at your sentencing? I had a really lovely letter from the guy who was the CC at Hinton um, Airfield where I learned to skydive about six months before I was arrested. Uh, He wrote a really nice letter to the judge. There were one or two others. Again, I realised at the time that none of that was going to make much difference um, when you're really, really in trouble nice words and platitudes don't really affect the outcome. So, but it was nice of them. And I saw Dave, I went to Hinton after I was released in 2011. I saw him and I thanked him for his help. And yeah, he's a nice guy. Was your mum and daughter at the sentencing hearing? Certainly not my daughter. No, I don't think my mum was, well, no, (laughs) I, I say, I don't think, she was dead, I'm afraid. Oh, my mum died in the same week that I pleaded guilty at the Old Bailey. Oh, man, sorry to hear that. She had a cancerous brain tumour. She went from alive and well to gone in about four weeks. I went to her funeral in cuffs and chains. It was it was pretty dire. There were a lot of people there who didn't know that I was in prison. The screws wouldn't let me have any kind of physical contact with anybody particularly. They did very graciously allow my daughter to sit on my lap in the church. It was difficult. It was difficult. So in America, they don't let you go funerals. In this UK, do you have to like apply for that or something? Yeah, I had to apply. I've got to give it to Belmarsh. They were decent with me. When my mum died, I'd been there six months. I like to think that I had already um, shown and was believed correctly to be a decent human being in spite of the reasons I was there and yeah, they were good with me. They let me go and see my mum in hospital when she was dying. Oh, wow. It was awful, but was nice I wanted to do it. And, um, and yeah, the, 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 the funeral was more or less a formality. And I felt really, I felt really humble and decent about it. You know, it made me look at, certain officers in a different way and it to an extent it made me look at Belmarsh in a slightly different way not that much though but you know would you say that going through that as horrible as it was was psychologically you know I could see it in your face would you say that going through that was part of your rehabilitation as well to think look my fa- how my family members have suffered well it was certainly but I probably didn't fully appreciate that until I was doing my second 17 year sentence because what I had to accept, and I had, and and I needed to accept it proper, properly, and know that I meant it, was that I messed it all up the first time. 
so clearly I hadn't thought of anyone enough except myself, I guess. And the truth of it is I was already dealing drugs before I finished my first sentence. And there were certain reasons, certain situations that kind of um, were catalysts to that. But I'm often asked, would I have done it anyway? And I can't say definitively that I wouldn't. I probably would have. So I guess I didn't learn my lesson. Yeah, it's take time. Where did you go after Belmarsh? Uh, so I left Belmarsh. I I was there for just just under two years. I went to Swaleside and um, I was called to reception one morning. I was really happy that Ben was there already. I knew we would be going together. We'd gone through a lot together already. Ben's mum died shortly after mine. She had um, Crohn's disease. She spent the time in hospital and it wasted her away and she died of a heart attack. So we were tight and it was great to see him there. I, I, f I felt really quite happy about that. We sat in the holding room in reception in Belmarsh for about three or four hours and then we were told the bus had been cancelled. So I went back to the wing I was on. My single cell had already been given away. I was chucked in three up. <laughs> I just thought, oh man, you know, how can this be? But by then I'd learned that that's prison, so you just have to suck it up. I went to work that afternoon. I was a gym orderly in Belmarsh. The gym officers were brilliant with me while I worked there. They were actual friends of mine, and that, that was so valuable. They got on the phone. They said, you're going tomorrow. Don't worry, there's another bus tomorrow. You're going, and Ben's going with you. Went down to reception the next morning. Ben was there. We got on the sweat box after a couple of hours. We didn't get out of Belmarsh before the sweat box broke down. And we just couldn't believe it. Um, but they managed to sort that out. And we eventually got going and we went to Swellside. And we really wanted to go there because at the time it was simply Belmarsh or Parkhurst. And I didn't want anybody to have to visit me sort of by way of a, a a ferry across the from South Sea to the Isle of Wight you know that just makes things even more difficult so I was pleased that we we went where we wanted to go and can you take us through your first day at Swaleside yeah I can uh it was amazing in that just one sort of detail it was true what we'd heard the screws would offer you a cup of tea in reception when you got there. And they made us a cup of tea in a china cup. And uh, there was carpet on the floor in reception. And, and we were almost laughing, because not because we thought we were having it off, but because we'd heard this. And bear in mind, Swellside was then referred to by everyone as Stabside. And there were pretty valid reasons for that. But yeah, I felt relieved to get out of Belmarsh and I thought, okay, now we're going to start chapter two of this this voyage and here we go. Um, so yeah, it was in its way, it was good to be there. And I just, my plan was to just, I knew I was going to be there for a long time and I just thought, right, I'm going to knuckle down and I'm going to make something of this because that's the lesson for prison they can all be horrible if you let them be, but if you if you make something of it, you can do okay. And Did you get your own cell? 
Um, me and Ben shared a cell for about two weeks and uh, that was great because we knew each other so well. We knew people already in Swellside, especially Ben. I would just like to say, actually, you asked me about my first day. Uh, we bumped into a guy who'd been in Belmarsh with us and he came down and I hadn't done this for a long time. He slipped a couple of joints of skunk into my hand and he said, welcome. And I smoked that weed that night and I ended up getting a voluntary and a mandatory urine test the next morning. And I thought, wow, you've messed it up already. You've not even been here 24 hours and and you're going to be in trouble. Fortunately for me, I've got negatives on both of them. So I was okay. And it it occurred to me recently that maybe I'd been set up. Yeah, I I was thinking that as soon as you said it. Maybe, I don't know. But I survived it and I never did anything again the whole time I was in jail. So it was a lesson well learned. Hope you're enjoying our podcast. Here's a word from a sponsor, Atlas VPN. This is the best VPN deal in the market. Enjoy the most affordable online protection for just $1.70 per month plus six months extra with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Enjoy Black Friday price cut because now Atlas VPN Premium is just $1.70 per month plus six months extra with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Protect your privacy and get many benefits of Atlas VPN for the ridiculously low price. You can take this deal by clicking the link in the video description below. Be quick as it's a limited time offer. Unlock your favourite content from all over the world. Can't access Friends or other legendary shows on your Netflix while being abroad? That's not a problem anymore. Atlas VPN got you covered. Hey, the Savile Doc, BBC, check it out in America. Know what I'm saying? Wink, wink. (laughs) (laughs) Keep your Google searches in private. Looking for something on Google? With Atlas VPN, you can search the web with real and organic search results and do it without tracking your activity. Go away, feds. (laughs) stop ads and malware this is more than just a vpn it blocks all the malicious links ads and trackers and notifies you when someone is trying to steal your data and we are inundated with hackers so atlas vpn take that hackers enjoy black friday price cut because now atlas vpn premium is just one dollar seventy per month plus six months extra with a 30-day money-back guarantee protect your privacy and get many benefits of atlas vpn for the ridiculously low price you can take this deal by clicking the link in the video description below be quick as it's a limited time offer so you're settling into swell side what's your routine well, I, uh, initially, I started as a, a peer tutor in in uh, education, and I was helping teach maths and English, and I quite enjoyed that. I I liked the kind of aspect of giving something. I volunteered to be a toe by toe mentor as well, so I was helping to teach uh, people who were completely illiterate their first words and and their first bit of reading. And my routine was the regime in Swellside was a lot better, a lot more time out of cell. So I quickly kind of got a routine together. I used to go running first thing in the morning around the yard, go to work, come back for lunchtime, bang up, spend a bit of time with myself, go back to work, teach maths and English, and um, then come back to the wing um a bit of evening association i always still kept very much to myself but ben 
is a real social animal and I got kind of swept along with that to the extent that I was comfortable with. And yeah, I enjoyed it. We we did meet one or two very decent people. So, you know, it, for the time that we had there and we knew both of us were going to be there for a while, Ben got 13 years, um, so he would be moving on quicker than me. But we knew that Ben would be there for at least a couple of years. And so we made the best of it and we did all right. And it wasn't an especially unhappy time. In fact, those four years I did in Swaleside were probably the best four years I did in all of the 17 that I've spent locked up. It was a good jail back then and I was a gym orderly for most of the time. I love my gym and training, so it was a busman's holiday, if that's the right (laughs) phrase. Probably not, but yeah. Who were your first visitors and was it more relaxed visits than Belmarsh? My, excuse me a second. Yeah, go for it. I don't actually specifically remember who my first visitors were, but I would imagine it was my my daughter and her mum. Uh, I have to say that my daughter's mum, in spite of the fact that we split up when my daughter was about probably less than six months old, she brought my daughter to see me once a month for the entire sentence. And I can't really put a value to that. It's, it's, you can't put that into words. And she had to travel and, you know, it was difficult, but she did it and she did it for me. She did it for our daughter. And I will never forget that. Uh, Probably they visited me first. It may have been my still girlfriend, um, Janine, um, if it it would have been either or. So you said it was you know you liked it as well side for those four years, but there was a situation of mistaken identity. There was. Um, it was. It happened very early. In fact, me and Ben were still in a two up together on the induction part of the wing we were on. Um, ben had gone for a visit, and I was just having a shower. It was a Saturday afternoon. I was in the shower, covered in soap and, and you know, shower gel. A guy called, he just kind of said, Oi, from behind me, I turned around and he lunged at me with a razor blade in a, melted into a toothbrush handle. He did catch me. Uh, it, it, you can barely see it now. I, was, I did move quite quickly, but he caught me sort of from here to here. Um, I was really lucky uh, it didn't get my eyeball. So I came out of the shower. I was bleeding a bit. I tried to just quickly slip into the cell. I was I was bleeding. Um, yeah, and he, as he left, he said, that's for Wandsworth. And that was the kind of the moment where I realised immediately that it was just rubbish. I've never been to Wandsworth jail. So... He obviously had the wrong person. Uh, there was a bit of a steward's inquiry, obviously, by by prison staff. They talked about moving me off the wing. I remember Ben was quite proactive in saying, no, he's a victim of something that wasn't anything to do with him. We have friends. We're decent prisoners. You know, you're not... and. They didn't move me. I I don't know whether they found out who did it to me. 
we were brand new in there. I wasn't really especially aware of the environment and what was going on. Uh, I never, I, I, I could, if the guy walked into this room right now, I wouldn't recognize him. I had soap in my eyes. So, you know, um, they did try and get it out of me who it was. I didn't know. And I wouldn't tell them anyway. National Crime Squad tried to roll me over back in at the start of, of, of all of this. And I'm not a grass. I never have been. And so the prison were getting nothing from me, even if I had something to give them. I didn't. So how did that change your attitude? I mean, you've got someone, you're living with hundreds of guys in close quarters. They've attempted this on you. Yeah. And you don't know who it is, but the person's in there with you. So you're thinking, when I go to lunch today, is that guy going to come up behind me again? Something, anything like that go through I, your head? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, to an extent, I was a little, a little bit more observant and watchful, but uh, I wouldn't necessarily say I positioned myself with my back to the wall all the time. Um, I was definitely in a kind of heightened state of awareness, and the thing about me is, if you come at me from the front, fair enough. I'll have it with anyone. Um, yeah, I, I just, I, I just took it on the chin and thought, I, I, I probably even thought that maybe this guy realised afterwards that he'd got the wrong person. In a kind of ideal blue skies world, I, I would, if it was me, I would have gone, found the guy and and said, look, I'm really sorry, and shaken hands and you know and if that had happened to me i would have accepted that i maybe i'd have knocked him out first <laughs> but i don't know but yeah i guess i was a little bit more watchful for a while and you know but these things happen sometimes did you try to make inquiries as to who it could have been i, I well we did um but again i i think i probably said to the the other guys look we're new here. I'm. I would prefer. Look, I haven't lost an eye. My face is like it's been chasing park buses anyway through my life. So another scar on it wasn't necessarily the end of the world for me. <laughs> so I think I probably would have said to the guys, "Look, please let's just settle here. We don't want any dramas with screws. I don't want to go to Parkhurst." what's happened has happened we can't take it back let's just kind of move forwards so then you end up where you're working out with the 10 gym orderlies and you've realized that many of them have killed their partners yeah um so rightly or wrongly i had a personal I'm going to put it as it was. I hated people that killed their wives or girlfriends. I hated them. And yeah, I was the number one gym orderly in Swellside. And I, I actually realized there was a period of time where there were 10 of us and I was the only gym orderly who wasn't doing life for killing his wife or girlfriend. And I kind of sat and thought thought about it. And I realized I had to kind of adjust my thinking a little bit because actually... These were still human beings and I did get on with most, if not all of them, to whatever extent. I was always, I, I, I keep most people at arm's length. It's kind of my natural demeanour. Um, but yeah, I, I, did, I just thought, you know, 
you can't hate all of the people you work with because ultimately it will be probably you on your way from the job. And I liked that job. And and so, yeah, I, I adjusted myself enough to be able to interact to a, in, to the extent of my own comfort zone. And yeah, it worked out okay. Some of them were in for not just killing their wife or girlfriend, but doing it in a pretty horrendous way. And uh, there are two officers who... Uh, one of them is now an ex-prison officer, so I can mention her. Her name's Gemma. She's a follower now on TikTok. Her and one of her colleagues used to give me the heads up on people on the wing. We had an agreement. We'll tell you who to avoid. You don't tell anybody else. And we kept that agreement for about three years. I never blabbed, but it meant that I could swerve the people that I really didn't want to spend time with. So I appreciate what they did for me then. And, and, um, I know it's against the rules and yada, yada, but, uh, Gemma has just got in contact with me very recently. She hasn't been a prison officer now for around about seven years. So I'm allowed to mention her name. The other lady, I will reserve her status. She's still a prison officer. Shout out to Gemma. You've got an open invitation to come on the podcast and tell your stories now after this. <laughs> they were really good with me and they were nice people. So, What did you like so much about being a gym modelly? Well, I've I've been in, in the gym all my life. I, the first time I walked in and started doing weights, I was about 14 years old. I've played a lot of sport all through my life. Um, I train more or less every day now. And... Again, there's something different about gym officers in prison, I've found. They tend to um, kind of put the uniform more to one side as much as they can with kind of due diligence and obviously with a professional kind of mind. But they can and they were my mates to an extent. And... The job was good. I did my job. I did it well. I was a manual handling instructor. I used to take every induction every Monday. And that's what actually was my introduction to talking to groups of people. So it's amazing to, to think back now how that has kind of in its sort of way brought me to where I am now doing videos on TikTok. I'm, I'm more than comfortable with it. And I've done... A, a, a fair share of talking in prisons to larger groups. The last thing I did was uh, interview Marissa America, the mafia princess in Pentonville. There was probably about 300 people there, including plenty of people from the normal world. I found it very comfortable and she was really good. And yeah, so I, I liked being a gym orderly and uh, it's a shame that they had to sack me in the end, but that was my own doing. We'll get to that. So the guards were supplying disco biscuits, but you had a friend who lost his life through that. Yeah. Um, there was um, there were friends of mine on another wing who they had got into a couple of screws uh, I'm not sure who kind of initiated that. 
probably my friends, if I'm being completely honest, but the screws were were happily willing. They started bringing all kinds of contraband in. There was a Friday afternoon where my friends all started partying. One of them was taking MDMA, bombing it, as they call it, where he was wrapping it in Rizzler papers and just taking it down in one hit. He found that nothing was happening for him, so he kept bombing and kept bombing, and eventually he came up on the whole lot and it killed him. And, um, yeah, it was a, it was a, a, a really horrible thing, and there were a lot of people in shock. His dad was in the prison on another wing at the same time, so I can't even begin to imagine how he felt about it. Uh, the officers who were involved were arrested, were processed. I don't know exactly the outcome, but I'm fairly confident to say that they were eventually, they were just um, no further action. I could kind of hypothesize about what happened there, but I would probably say they did some kind of deal. I know a lot of people got shipped out to dispersal prisons and and they probably wouldn't have if certain people hadn't been giving certain information i think this is just my theory on it all but my prison experience is long enough to to i i think my theories are probably fairly um believable so we're going to go into some drug terminology now so for the purposes of youtube are you all right just use green white and brown for yeah, the three main drugs yeah, yeah of course so we're going to go into a story about brown when a friend decided his enough was enough because a guy didn't pay his brown debt yeah um that was a, a good friend of mine i'm just gonna uh say it was michael he is from a large family of um irish travelers he he was somewhat active and uh at that time swellside was a place where if people wanted to they could um get themselves whatever brown they wanted there was one particular guy who wasn't paying his tab he'd had a couple of friendly warnings michael went to see him one afternoon and the guy tried to throw a shot at michael he did actually catch him, not very hard, but Michael came back with a little bit of a mark on his eye. Um, he he immediately paid two other what we called bagheads, a couple of £10 drawers each, and they went and took a the largest Dutch pot you can get. They filled it with cooking oil, they boiled it, and they launched it all over the guy's face um i was very close by i saw some of the aftermath of that i certainly heard the screams and i think probably the whole prison heard the screams i've never really heard anything quite like it i know the guy was in intensive care for quite a long time michael was immediately um transferred out to dispersal yeah, it was kind of shocking, um, but I do know what Michael 
nice guy as he is was capable of and so on that sort of basis it didn't surprise me particularly it's a kind of a prison thing as well the world is watching and if you don't stand up and be counted then you're a potential kind of target you're a nobody and a nothing and Michael was not that so he did what he had to do and people know the consequences when they get involved in these things yeah absolutely we've got young Ian and how your friends recruited him to collect the brown parcels yeah I mean this is just it's almost funny but it isn't Ian was a young guy he looked about 12 years old I the first time I saw him I thought what on earth are you doing here he rolled over in his bed one night and dislocated his shoulder and uh, he had to go to hospital to have it um, repositioned replaced Um, he came back he was in a sling for a while and a couple of my friends then thought there's a coup here there's a there's a there's an angle so they they spoke to Ian and Ian was uh, happy to go along with it. He was going to be paid whatever he was going to be paid. So they started pulling his arm out of its socket and he would be then taken to hospital to have things put back together. While he was in hospital, he would go to the toilet and in in respect of a prisoner's dignity, you would be put on a closet chain then, which was probably around about four feet long. You were allowed into the toilet on your own. Obviously, they couldn't shut the door properly, but Ian was game. He collected the first time, was ridiculous. It was something like two ounces of green, about maybe four and a half ounces of not brown, but the other, the green brown, a couple of phones. And I remember it was almost comical when he walked back onto the wing, he was waddling like a duck. (laughs) He's only a small guy. He was probably about 11 stone ringing wet, but it worked and they did it a few times. And uh, maybe Ian probably got fed up with having his arm pulled out of his socket. (laughs) But yeah, they did it and it worked. And yeah, it was, I, I guess, in a way, it was kind of ingenious in a way. I mean, yeah. What was the hooch recipe? Huh. Well, it, depend, it depended who you spoke to, who you saw. But essentially, back then, most people would um, get a little bit of yeast from uh, just the prison bread, maybe some crackers. And you you um, start what's called a kicker. So you'll use some yeast and quite a lot of sugar and a little bit of um, liquid, probably orange juice, something like that. Maybe some Marmite. Um, it did, like I say, it depended who was doing it. But the, probably the good ones, I think, were the Marmite ones. Once you've got your kicker, that then is your kind of um, instigator for basically as much hooch as you want to make. So all the time you've got that tucked away somewhere. I've known people who were who were turning out 15, 20 litres of hooch a week and getting everyone just drunk as lords. I'll be honest, I did drink hooch a few times during my time in Swellside. 
It's not a great vintage. It's pretty rough. It can upset your stomach a bit. Gave me the shits. Yeah, but I, I had friends there who used to love it and just get pissed up all the time. So Yeah, my mate Wildman used to love it. Yeah. But you managed to get <laughs> overdosed on that and meds. Yeah, I was um I was being prescribed um cocodamol at the time. I have a back condition. It was playing up really badly at the time. I was getting a lot of sciatica, a lot of problems. So I had this cocodamol and one evening I I think I'd taken some and I had a litre of hooch. And I was drinking the hooch and I, I started to realise, wow, this is actually really quite powerful. So, yeah, stupidly, if you like, I, I then decided, right, I'm going to actually party a little bit. I don't, I never drank with people. Um, I used to just do my own thing. So, yeah, I would take a couple of cocodamol, whack a litre of hooch, and that would keep me going for the rest of the night little bit of music on, just chilling out, just, you know, taking some of the pressure off myself, I guess. You, it's just a, a temporary release. And, of course, I probably paid for it the next day, but I guess on balance, I only did it probably two or three times. It was worth it in those moments, but quickly. I'm not, I'm, I'm actually not a drug taker. I, I, I had some, uh, I took a, a fair amount of drugs, uh, white and party drug when I was young in my sort of late teens, early twenties, but I quickly kind of grew out of all of that. So the hooch and cocodamol thing was a very brief moment in time. And, uh, yeah, I moved on and kept myself clean. It sounds like that your first day in HMP high point was eventful. Yeah, uh, this is kind of moving towards the end of my time. I was originally transferred to Stanford Hill Open Prison. I I have to be completely honest, I absolutely went off the rails in there. I was getting involved in everything that was that could make me some money. I was thrown out. I only lasted there about five months. I was thrown out. I spent about a week in Elmley next door straight into a gym job because I knew all the screws, Elmley, Swellside, Stanford Hill, they're all together. So actually one of the gym screws came and got me from reception and said, you're a gym orderly now. Boom. <laughs> Security didn't like that. So they sacked me. They then, um, I was ghosted out of Elmley. I spent one solitary night in Chelmsford and then I was taken to High Point. I arrived there about seven o'clock in the evening, was put straight into a cell, banged up. I wrote my phone numbers on, on the the paperwork that you're given to get them cleared. When my door was opened the next morning, I um, I went straight to the bubble, which is the wing office, handed my paperwork in. I came back to my cell. There was a big guy standing in the doorway of my cell. I said, excuse me, mate, uh, you know, I was trying to be <laughs> polite and decent. If, I kind of had to push past him in the end. He didn't really want to move. Um, there was another guy in my cell. He'd emptied all my bags all over the floor. I punched him straight in the windpipe and he went down. Um, I was 
obviously raging. I'd never, I'd never had my cell robbed before, but this guy now came in and he kind of grabbed me from behind and there was a bit of a tussle and he, he leaned over and he, again, razor blade, toothbrush. It's a, it's an old favorite in prison. He sliced me down the side of my face and, and then he ran off. This one was actually worse than the first one. Um, I felt it and I then was really angry and, um, some people know what happened to this guy trying to now get out of my cell. It, it didn't go brilliantly for him. I'm not sure whether it's necessarily right for me to say what happened, but I can, if you want, Sean. I think the viewers are going to demand it. Well, he was trying to push past me. He was still a little bit, you know, sort of flummoxed by the, the shot into the windpipe. I was very angry. I'm not proud of it at all, but I picked up a biro that was on the table um, to my left and I rammed it straight into the top of his leg as he went past me. Um, I would say that all bar about an inch and a half of it were, were stuck in his leg. I've never stabbed it. I'm, I'm not a person that ever carried a knife and um, I'm not proud of what happened that day, but it just shows in the moment you can completely lose your control. And I did. And I, I put that pen in him and I, and I, I'm not going to lie to you. I hope it really hurt. I certainly hoped it hurt at the time. These scumbags to me, robbing my cell, look, things like that happen in prison. <laughs> I liked to think that they didn't happen to me, but it did. I was new in the jail if I'd been there two weeks, no one would have come near my cell door, but I was a newbie. They took their chances. He he got a pen stuck in his leg. There's nothing worse than a jailhouse thief, is that's the lowest of the low, especially when people have hardly got anything. To it, begin well, with. you know, and everything you have in jail is is like of the ultimate importance because you have so little that everything becomes precious to you everything and i am a bit of a hoarder and um yeah and a peter thief as they're called i mean i've never seen this happen but it's always been said that a peter thief will have will be taken to the nearest cell door and have his fingers slammed in the door maybe that's a little bit of a prison kind of legend i don't know i i guess probably back in the day it used to be like that but I never saw it happen. I have seen Peter Thieves dealt with, though, and uh, there are various ways and means. Earlier on, you were talking about the necessity for Michael to set a precedent. Did that set a precedent? Did people not mess with you at that prison after that? Well, it did and it didn't, because actually what happened after that was that somehow the, the, the authorities within the prison decided that the whole thing was my fault. <sighs> The governor, they locked me in my cell. They refused to take me to hospital. They locked me in my cell and they told me I couldn't come out to call my solicitor. Nobody knew where I was. I had to sign a disclaimer in the end just to get a call to my solicitor. They shoved it under the door. Uh, it was an agreement that I would take no action against the prison service for what had happened to me. I signed it, shoved it back under the door. About an hour later, they let me out to call my solicitor. Um, 
yeah, I felt kind of hard done by that. They they said to me, it must be something that has spilled over from another jail. We want to know who did it. I said, where does it say in my paperwork that I'm a grass? Anyway, about I I was now there for about a week. Yeah, nobody bothered me. I think mo- pretty much the whole wing knew what had happened. I collared the residential governor. I saw him walking across the wing after about a week, and I said, "What's happening? No, I'm not. I'm still not able to call any of my people. And what is going on in this place?" He said, "Yeah, we're we're dealing with that. You will get your phone calls." He said, "But." More importantly, I want to know who did that to you. And again, I said, look, I've been in jail for seven and a half years. You've probably got paperwork on me about this big. Please go and scan that paperwork. If you find something in there that that indicates to you that I'm some kind of snitch, come back and see me. I got moved out of the jail the next morning. Um, You know... I shouldn't have had to have that conversation. All I wanted to do was call my daughter and call the people that cared about me, you know. But Where'd you go next? So I was moved then to um, Edmonds Hill, which is only about a 15-minute sweatbox drive from High Point. It's now called High Point North. And, um, yeah, it was okay there. I had a... Uh, a cell with a shower in there and that is everything to me I did my last nine months there I quietly got on with that I, I at that stage you you you're just thinking look you're going home soon none of it matters anymore you're getting out I did a, I spent the, the rest of my time in an art class and kind of enjoyed it turned out one or two really kind of basic level bits of painting and I just enjoyed the peace and quiet actually the the art class was relatively empty and I like that in any prison situation the less people the better so yeah uh Edmonds Hill as it was then was decent enough I I never really had any problems there apart from bizarrely in my far, final sort of three or four weeks what happened I was called to the wing SO's office and he proceeded to tell me that they'd received intel intelligence which uh, said to them that I had been bullying people for their subutex. Uh, Subutex is a substitute for brown. It's a medicinal substitute. I've never to this day seen any. It's, It's nothing to do with me. I said to this SO, look, this is ridiculous. I said, but here's the deal. There's the segregation unit right over there. I'll go and pack all my stuff now and I'll park up in there till I go home. I'm out in four weeks. Your your information is completely, it's so far of the mark, I can't even begin to tell you. I'm not involved with drugs. You know, I'm a convicted drug dealer. The last thing I need is you lot all over me for for being involved and I said I'm not a bully either and drug test me I don't take anything anyway he said no no calm down we're we're just letting you know that you know you, you we've had this and you're being watched and I said watch me all you like mate I'm going home I don't care two weeks later I was called back into the office 
to, to have the same speech. Apparently, intelligence had told them again. I, ju I just said, look, I'd said it to you before. I'll go there now without any of my stuff. I don't care. I'm going home. Do what you want with me. It doesn't matter to me anymore. And uh, they left me alone. And it, it was a complete lie. And it's not the first lie that I've had to deal with in prison. And it, it was... The, out, the, the consequences of that lie were a lot less serious than the, the other lie that was told about me, uh, which, if you'd like me to, I, I can... Please elaborate. So on my second sentence, I was in Coldingley. I'd just done my Level 2 engineering qualifications, and I was actually welding beds for segregation units in other jails, one afternoon, three or four screws turned up, told me to take my overalls off, put me in handcuffs. They said, we have to take you to the block, the segregation unit. Said, why? And they said, we don't know. We haven't been told. I was taken there. I was strip searched. I was put in prison clothes and I was chucked in a cell and left um, probably for about two hours. I was then put in front of um, the governor of the prison who said, he asked me a question. He said, have you heard that parcels have been coming over the, the fences lately? And I said, yeah, everyone hears that all the time. It's nothing new. He said, well, there's one parcel that the, uh, a person was caught collecting it. And I'm just completely bamboozled. I said, yeah. And he said, well, the parcel had some snips in it. And I said, what, you mean scissors? And he said, no, wire cutters. And again, I said, and? He said, the person who was caught with those has told us that they were for you. And I, I, just, I, I just couldn't really believe it. And I said, so, I said, look, let me just tell you straight away, whatever you've paid that informant, you need to go and get a refund because this is bullshit. And I, I said, who would do that and why? And he said, well, look, that's what we've been told and we will be acting accordingly. And I immediately, I said, so you're what? I've been a cat A in Belmarsh. You're going to throw me back in Belmarsh. He said, we don't know what we're going to do with you yet. Um, but, you know, for the time being, you'll be held in, in the seg. Um, I spent 15 nights in the SEG and then I was escorted as an escape risk to Pentonville. Four prison officers from Coldingley in a prison MPV. I was chained, double cuffed, closet chained, closet chained. And we drove to uh, Caledonian Road in North London and they dumped me in Pentonville. And they knew that it was rubbish. I didn't even lose my Category C status. If you're an escape risk, you're a B-cat at, at, at best. But but I, I understand that they did have to act on it because escape is a serious allegation. I can honestly say, because it doesn't matter to me either way now, I'm done. It wasn't true. There was not one atom of truth in what was said about me. And, and yeah, I... I learned something. I'd done a lot of prison by that time and I learned an important lesson. Any prisoner can ruin your life with a complete lie. And it did ruin my life. Pentonville was awful jail. 
I hated every minute of the nine months I was there. And somebody took it upon themselves to make that happen to me. And truthfully, I didn't have any enemies in Coldingley. I, I can't remember ever falling out with anyone there. I was there for 18 months and they were peaceful, uh, you know, months. So even now it's been what, five years since that happened. And I still, sometimes I catch myself thinking, what on earth went on there? But it happened and it's all water under the bridge now. So going back to the first sentence, then, I can't believe they snatched your inheritances. They did. Yeah, I had a large confiscation order and it did drag on for most of the time I was away because I had um, a property in Spain, in northern Spain. And I had put that property in my mum's name. My mum had passed away. I had to deal personally with the whole kind of legal aspect of that in Spain. I had no help from the confiscation unit at the Old Bailey. They just told me to get on with it. Fortunately for me, I'd retained enough of my Spanish A-level that I managed to kind of pigeon Spanish some letters to uh, legal uh, help in Spain. We did get that resolved. But yeah, your point. My mum died, as I've said, uh, after six months of, of my time away. She left me half of her property. My nan died probably about three years after that. She left me half of her house. The authorities, it's its kind of complicated and it's not easy for the general public to understand how confiscations work. But because I had a large benefit figure, which is essentially a number plucked from the ether by the Crown Prosecution Service, I technically still owed that money. And, and yeah, they got onto me from the old Bailey and said the upshot was... They sent me paperwork to sign away my inheritances. And they just said, look, we'll put it very simply to you. If you don't sign the paperwork, you will lose the property anyway, and we will get your four-year default sentence activated. So then I'm thinking, okay, I'm not, I won't be serving 17 years anymore. I'll be serving 21 years. And with that, no chance of an open prison. I sat in my cell in Coldingley on New Year's Eve 2009. It was kind of dark and I was... It's a time where you do kind of reflect and you think, I, I'm a bit of a deep thinker and I was sitting there and I just thought, what you need to do, mate, is get yourself out of prison because this is no life for you. This is just a waste of everything and anything. So I sat in the dark there in on New Year's Eve and I signed all the paperwork and um, they took their their extra pound of flesh, if you like. And um, I don't regret it at all because I, I have a much better understanding now about material wealth and and its, its true value, which is actually very little and it certainly has very little value to me now. And yeah, it was, it was, I, I was upset for my late mother and my late grandmother because they were honest, hardworking people their whole lives. And what they had left me was snatched by the, the authorities. And I just, I felt bad for them and I still feel bad for them to this day because they didn't deserve that. 
and I tried to argue the point. These are completely legitimate people who have legitimate wealth. And they said, doesn't matter, mate, you owe the money. And just as a kind of footnote to that, I haven't done the maths recently, but between my two benefit figures, I currently still owe around about 4 million and it rises at 8% interest a year. I'm not, I can't ever have a mortgage again. I can't ever own a car that's worth more than three or four grand because they'll just come and snatch it. Can't have any savings. But I understand it all and, um, and you know, it is what it is. So I'm just going to get on with my life. What a racket. Why did you threaten your stepdad? <laughs> my stepdad, so there was some money that was salvaged from the wreckage of my first arrest. And my stepdad, when my mum fell ill and was kind of non-compass, he got his hands on that money and uh, he had designs about keeping it. And I had one opportunity to look him in the eye and it was when I went to visit my mum in hospital. He was sitting by her bed playing the doting husband, which he certainly wasn't. And uh, I'm chained and there's a screw here and I just thought, you've only got this one chance, mate. So I just kind of leaned over and I said, I'll have you done. I'll have you done. Give me my belongings back. He he looked at me in a kind of curious way. He'd been saying a lot of things about me to my sister. Who does he think he is? What? Because he got caught with a few guns. He thinks he's a bit of a geezer and all the rest of it. And I just sat there and looked him in the eye and I said, I am potentially what you don't think I am. You need to be very careful. And I'm kind of whispering it out the side of my mouth, but he, I, he got the point. What he had stolen was returned minus. He helped himself to about 20 grand. And as it turns out, by the time I got towards the end of my sentence, all of the money was gone anyway. Mm-hmm. The the people who were trusted to take care of that for me uh, messed it up. And I, it was fine, really, because I, uh, I what was I going to do about that? They didn't mess it up by chucking it around and living the high life. It wasn't a huge amount of money. I'll be honest about it. I probably salvaged around about 130 grand, which in the bigger picture for me was actually a relative drop in the ocean. But I I spent most of that first sentence thinking, well, you've, you've got at least a, a bit of breathing space when you get out and a bit of a leg up. I I had a real kind of um, anxiety about being released from prison with nothing but the clothes on my back. And so that that gave me a bit of comfort through my sentence. When I found out it was no longer there, what can you do? I shrugged my shoulders, I dusted the dirt off them and just got on with it. Why did you get kicked out of open prison in 2010? Ha. Huh. I'll be honest with you, I was involved in everything that could make money 
I just, I, I'm not really sure how this happened. I was really lived very clean and very and squeaky clean during the time I was in closed prison, and then I got to open prison, and I thought, oh, you know, here I go. I'm, I'm kind of looking at, I'm out soon, and yeah, very quickly I was involved in spice, steroids, alcohol, phones anything really i was even selling large tubs of protein in there because you couldn't get protein in that jail then i had a guy who lived opposite me on the landing i found out that he was driving the tractors that used to go and empty the bins at swaleside and elmley i went to see him and i said look how do you feel about collecting and he said yeah i'll do it for you and i said well look what do you want for doing it? Name it, whatever you want. And he said, mate, I'll do it for you for nothing. And literally, I was a gym orderly and a health promotion orderly in Stanford Hill. I had my own little office where we used to do people's health checks. The tractor driver would literally deliver sports bags full of contraband to me at the door of my uh healthy living office and um yeah i look back on it now and i again it's it's something that i just think what was going on there mate you know but what was going on was that it's kind of uh it's part of being in an open prison they it's not it's not written this way, but it is a fact, really, that they will give you all the rope you need. It's up to you whether you hang yourself with it. And I thoroughly hung myself, so I was thrown out, and I deserved to be. Did you not have a post-release plan? At the time, <laughs> yeah. At the end of my first sentence, I was already dealing drugs, mm. and my post-release plan was... Uh, to an extent it was cemented by the fact that I found out on a home leave that all my money was gone so I thought okay well we know where we're going now I didn't train in any kind of vocational way during my first sentence I did things like open university and I started a degree in social science and I I did quite a lot of kind of academia but of course now in hindsight I realized that it wasn't a waste of time because I kind of enjoy, I did enjoy doing it. I, I had that sense of achievement, but in the real world, those things aren't necessarily going to get you any gainful employment. So yeah, I did them. Um, I, I changed direction on the second sentence and I only actually, as it turned out, needed one thing to set me on the path I'm on now and that was my Nibosh level three in in construction health and safety the my uh the company's director who gives me my work I'm freelance so without him uh I'm not sure exactly where I would be we had a five minute interview on the phone he said I'll give you a chance and I've grabbed that with both hands. I love the job I do. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I've got some exciting news to announce. Michael Francis is coming back to tour the UK in 2024. 
the remade mentor, the Michael Francis story. Michael Francis, once named one of the 50 most significant mob bosses in the USA by Fortune magazine, and a former member of the notorious Colombo crime family, will take you deep into the world of organized crime, sharing captivating tales and insights into the mafia's past, present, and future. Join us for an unforgettable evening with Michael Francis, the original Goodfella, as he exclusively sits down with myself, Sean Atwood. With me as the host, there's going to be a no-holes-barred exploration of Michael Francis's life, including his numerous arrests and jury trials that ultimately led to his pleading guilty to a federal racketeering charge, a 10-year prison sentence, and $15 million in restitution. You will have the unique opportunity to ask questions during an audience Q&A session, making this event a must-see for true crime enthusiasts and anyone curious about the underworld. Don't miss this explosive in-conversation with Michael Francis. Live on stage in the UK, this exclusive in-person event will be held in various locations in the UK, Ireland and Scotland. Link in the description box below this video if you want to grab yourself a ticket. Back to the podcast. Cheers. People will know I don't necessarily enjoy the 700 plus miles I have to drive every week to do the job. But, you know, ultimately beggars can't be choosers. I'm very lucky to have the job I have and I... I appreciate it and I do it to the best of my ability. So a lot happened between sentence one and sentence two. You nearly died in a mysterious mountain bike accident. That is true. Yeah. Um, it was father's day, June the 15th, 2014. I had booked a table for lunch for me, my daughter and my son who was baby then. And I just on a kind of whim, I decided, I said to my daughter, I'm going to go and have a quick blast so that I can actually have a dessert today. I was really very strict on my diet back then with training and I was, I was having a few fights. And so I went for a bike ride and I remember nothing. Um, I was, I came off apparently at walking pace I landed square on my head. I didn't have a helmet on. I fractured my skull in six places, broke my neck. I was airlifted to St. George's in Tooting. I was in a coma. And I've only recently found out that during that time in a coma, my then girlfriend was told that they didn't particularly fancy my chances of surviving. Uh, yeah, like I say, I've only in the last few months found that out and uh, survive I did. Um, I I was in a real mess. I came out of my coma. I started fighting the, the, uh, the hospital staff. I was ripping all my tubes out. I tried to pull my catheter out of my... Uh, my male member. Um, that doesn't work. I can vouch for that. I had a serious traumatic brain injury was one of the diagnoses. And, um, yeah, I struggled for years after that. And I spent six weeks in hospital. I was um, discharged. And six weeks later, I was arrested after the second operation on me by Surrey police. I literally couldn't time. I, I couldn't do anything for myself when I went back to prison. I was an absolute wreck 
And uh, yeah, it was an interesting recovery that I had. Well, you've teased the viewers there, and I know they're going to push me to ask this, and I hate to ask it. You said you tried to pull the catheter out, and it doesn't work. Yeah. What happened? <laughs> um, so this is actually one of the first things that I remember after coming out of my coma, because I was conscious for a week or two but i don't remember anything about that period i was not a nice person i'm told um but yeah i do remember vividly i just grabbed it and i was trying really hard to pull it out of me i'd already pulled tubes out of my mouth uh intravenous stuff out of my arms i just kept pulling it all out and i refused to take medication but I was just pulling and pulling and pulling and I, it, I, I can't, it's a hard thing to kind of make a comparison to, but it, I guess you could say I was trying to pull a, a beach ball out of the end of my penis is probably the best way to describe it. And it wasn't going to shift, um, but I gave it a good go. I can tell you that much. Um, I tried really hard. Eventually I gave up out of frustration that it wasn't happening and I just I just stopped and yeah it sounds like you've been through a lot of pain in your life is that top of the scale no not even close no no that it was kind of painful but I think um yeah there are one or two other things that have been more painful definitely at least one or two other things so yeah, I just wouldn't advise it is is the best I can say there. We'll get to them. There was a possibility that this may have been an assassination attempt, the mountain bike incident. That is what is still doing the rounds in certain corners now. Uh <laughs> I I was told I'd been in high down on my second sentence for about a year and a half. A guy came into the gym. He was a guy who was a, uh, a had been a low-level dealer. I used to send one of the drivers to just give him bits of work, um, almost as a favour. It was way out of my pay grade, to be honest. But um, he, yeah, so he walked up to me in the gym. I was a gym orderly, and he said, "How are you doing?" And I said, "Well, I'm I'm a year and a half after the accident. I'm still half." you know uh, a a mess a wreck and he said you do know that that was someone put a hit on you and I said no 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 they didn't he said yeah someone put a hit on you because of turf wars and I looked at him and I said mate this is Surrey I said I'm I am I was a high level drug dealer but I'm also a businessman I'm not a gangster I said, trust me, if any of the people that I was doing business with had put a hit on me, you wouldn't be talking to me today. You wouldn't be talking to me. This is a very serious thing. A a genuine hit is death. There's no recovery in St. George's tooting. But yeah, I was kind of surprised, but I, I just laughed it off. I know that it wasn't a hit put on me. I know that in spite of what I was doing at the time, nobody had any reason to put a hit on me. That's the truth. I've never owed anyone a penny in my life. I've never, 
I've never done anything to anybody that would bring that upon myself. It was just uh, a kind of rumour that gathered momentum. And like I said, it's still said in certain quarters today. But, I mean, it's awful because at one point it was being said that my then-girlfriend had put the hit on me because she found out I was cheating on her. And I just thought, she doesn't know any people like that. It's the most ridiculous notion. So I just kind of laughed it off, and I still laugh it off now. And, um, yeah, I guess I would say that if it was a hit, get a refund because they failed. They don't deserve paying. You were still recovering from this and couldn't see properly when you were rearrested. Yeah. Yeah, I was in a bad way. I couldn't walk in a straight line. I couldn't dress myself. I couldn't bathe myself. I couldn't see properly. I had um, nerve damage in my neck called six nerve palsy and it made my right eye point almost at a sort of 45 degree angle and so I was cross-eyed and I yeah I couldn't read or write I couldn't I couldn't I just couldn't really do anything and uh, I'm asked the question quite often did I did they look after me in prison in terms of my health and recovery excuse me you're fine And the answer is no, they didn't. I I was pretty much left to, to kind of take care of myself. And I did that to the best of my ability. But um, I have to be honest about this, and I'm not ashamed to say it. I wasn't just suicidal for the first six months. I was planning and ready to go through with it. I know how to commit suicide in prison without being found halfway through the act. And I had everything I needed. There are two things that stopped me. One was my daughter. I couldn't do it to her. And the other was my then girlfriend, Emma, who was arrested wrongfully arrested and charged and I knew that I had to even in my brain damaged state I knew that I had to stay around and do anything and everything I could to help her because I knew the truth and the truth was that she hadn't done anything wrong I I was really really devastated by that and even now I really have difficulty um, accepting what happened with Emma. It was grossly unfair. And, uh, and yeah, but, you know, again, it's just, it's now one of those things that have happened and we can't take it back. But I needed to stay alive so that I could do everything I could for the only thing I wasn't prepared to do. And my QC did ask me about this quite early because he he knew from me that I was much more interested in Emma's outcome than my own. I knew I was going down the Kermit for a long time again. And he said to me on a meeting, have you considered, you know, and I said, what do you mean? I knew what he meant, but I wanted him to say it to me. He said, have you considered a, a, a brown envelope to the judge? And I said, look, 
I will do anything to help Emma, but I won't do that. I'm not a grass. I'm never going to be a grass. I, I'm not doing that. And he said, okay, that's the end of the conversation. And I said, yes, it is. And it, it, it won't be instigated again by you or by me. That's dead. Were you put in a medical ward or just straight into the prison? No, I was chucked onto the induction wing of High Down. They did put me in a single cell. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure whether I was just fortunate or, or not. I had been a medical single for, for more or less the second half of my first sentence because I, I, developed um, ulcerative colitis about halfway through my first sentence. That's kind of a whole other story, but I, I'm i not going to lie, I used my ticket in with ulcerative colitis. I insisted that I had to be on my own because it was extremely embarrassing when I had bouts and I needed a toilet and I needed a shower because of my own kind of I have high personal hygiene standards and and you know it's not a pleasant thing when you when you're suffering about but no um I I was just left to my own devices I did see healthcare during those that first time but only only really in the same way that anyone else would I had to book an appointment I had to wait six eight weeks to see a GP a locum who frankly didn't really give a damn about me or anyone else um and I just got on with it I I did go out to hospital a few times I had to go to neurology departments and one or two other kind of consultancies um but yeah I just had to get on with it myself and I did and that's kind of a getting on with it on my own and, and and dealing with my own shit is kind of a description of my entire life really in a lot of ways and I'm kind of a climate I oh, well I'm fully acclimatized to it and I just deal with it. Whatever it is I deal with it. Did any prisoners or officers try to exploit that you were medically vulnerable? No, they didn't. Um, I had one or two people who um, who kind of kept an eye out for me but you know what I know it's something to say and talk is cheap but even then I didn't need anyone to look out for me I knew prison then even though I was in a bad state and if it came to it I'd still swing my arms, and and if I had to, I would have. There was one officer who I couldn't read. I I got a job quite quickly in education, even though I was in a terrible state. I was paid a pound a session. Um, I couldn't read the movement slips for my work. I went to an officer one morning after unlock, and I said, Gov do me a favor please can you tell me what that says on there and he looked at me in a I thought as soon as he looked at me I thought "Hmm, this is going to be interesting he read it for me he was with a female colleague and he just said there you go Ravenhill I've read it for you now 
cough. And I, 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 I did go away, but I, I just thought, you know what, mate? Even in the state I'm in, you can't do that. I will knock you out. I didn't. But he had no reason to do that. I was polite and decent, as I always am and always was with prison officers. They're not my enemy. They're there doing what they do. I don't want any aggravation. But this guy, I guess he tried to press my buttons, and I have no idea why. He could see that I couldn't put up a fight. So, yeah, I was disappointed with that, and it stuck in my memory. That probably was the only thing I experienced, whether by... sort of good fortune or I guess some people say that I look the part when you look me in the eye and I've got a certain face on and um, even that probably helped me at that time to whatever extent I guess so now you're up for sentencing again what did they convict you of this time It was kind of a lot more clear-cut and straightforward the second time I was charged with... Initially, I was charged with conspiracy to supply Class A, Class B and Class C, three separate charges. I was also charged with conspiracy to... No, sorry, that's wrong. I was also charged with illegal possession of human flesh... I had bought from a friend a a human embryo which was um, in a nice container with formaldehyde or whatever preservative. I I have a, I wouldn't say a morbid fascination there, but I, I'd like kind of curiosities and stuff like that. I'm a, I've, I've visited the Hunter Ian Museum. I love all of that stuff. It's very interesting to me. I'd bought this thing. I was charged. As it turned out, the the friend of mine, John, he's my tattooist, who uh, sold that to me, he came to see me in Highdown when the charge was still active. And he said, listen, you'll be fine. There's no such charge. It's all wrong. And he was right. The charge was dropped and and the piece was returned to me. And uh, I don't have it any longer. I would like to, but um, it had to be moved on. So yeah, it was it, ultimately it was class A, class B, class C. What evidence did they have against you? <laughs> they found where it was all um, stored, and um, what I'd done, I'd changed my name by deed poll after my release, and it 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 actually was because I had trouble. Uh, renting houses because a couple of times I'd, I'd agreed a deal with, an, uh, with a, uh, an, an agent or, or the private owner and uh, between the, the handshake and me actually moving in they had googled me and they then called me and said no no you're not moving in here and I, I understood that and actually they were right they didn't know they were right but so I changed my name by deed poll and I had a place, really a very kind of isolated place and, and it was in my new name and I just felt comfortable that probably I could keep my stuff there. Nobody visited me there. I had no friends come round, anything. Nobody knew where I lived. But of course, when an operation starts, the first thing they do is start following you. 
and I was followed there and they pieced it all together. So Piers, you were in in the midst of the spice epidemic, were you? Yeah, I was. Uh, I came back to prison in 2014 and um, I did mention earlier that I was selling spice in Stamford Hill in 2010. It wasn't then what it became. Not. I mean, I'll be honest with you, I was smoking spice in 2010 because I was in open prison and all my friends were smoking it and we used to sit around and play Kaluki and smoke spice and we we were fully functioning. It was not an issue at all. It was it was kind of like having a, a smoke of very um, lightweight African green. Um, and then when I came back in 2014, wow, everything had changed and it was taking people out of the game um, in a really kind of uh, almost terrifying way, really. And, and it was a shock to see. Um, and it, and it, it, had, it didn't discriminate at all. There were 50-year-old, 60-year-old people smoking around me and just literally flopping on the floor and crawling on their hands and knees. And they didn't know whether it was Wednesday or Wembley. It, you know, it, it was a shock. What was the most dangerous behaviour you saw on it? Um, well, th- there's one thing that, uh, yeah, it was kind of dangerous. There was a, a guy when I was a biohazard cleaner, he he smoked spice. I was told it was for the first time ever. He was 30. He was getting close to finishing his relatively short sentence he had a young baby waiting for him with his girlfriend and he lost his mind and it never came back. And um, I um, I used to have to go and clean up after him in healthcare in Highdown where he was there for probably about three months, smashing his cell to pieces every day, covering the cell in his own feces, eating his own feces, eating his prison mattress um it it was a shock and it actually really upset me at times because he had moments where he came out of it and you know you kind of think oh it could be a, a, a miracle almost and then he was gone again and one of those moments where he was okay I was there I was in healthcare doing a clean and um they had to carry him to shower him and undress him and dress him. And then he, he was kind of okay. When they brought him out of the showers, they were drying him and dressing him, looking after him. And he, he was fine. And then he just suddenly got it into his head that they said they were going to kill his granddad. And he absolutely had, he just melted and he was crying and, you know, kind of, curled up in a fetal position on the floor and I it brought tears to my eyes because I thought this guy's never going to come back from this and I don't know what happened to him I think he went to a secure hospital in the end and um, yeah he never came back and there was another incident um, a guy on the VP wing in Highdown so vulnerable prisoners i don't know what the deal was with him he may have been a 
It's possible he was a sex offender. He may have been just vulnerable to bullying, but he he called the the screws to his cell on Boxing Day. Uh, I I think it was probably Christmas two thousand and sixteen. He was in a bad way, and they asked him, and he said, "Yeah, I've smoked spice." And he was rushed to hospital. He had two heart attacks that day. He was only in his mid-twenties. And on New Year's Eve, he died from renal failure. And of course, prison being prison, and I can't say that I wasn't part of this, we were all kind of saying, yeah, well, one less sex offender, one less this, you know. And so nobody particularly gave a damn about it. But obviously now and not even now quickly afterwards i i just thought because he died in front of his family in hospital and obviously that's gonna be quite traumatic um to say the least and um yeah i i I, i've seen other i've seen and heard of other people dying during my second sentence and um yeah, it's been a real game changer. The prison authorities have never really got a grasp of how to deal with it. Spice, when I left prison six months ago, you could still get it anywhere and everywhere. And, you know, there's some quite uh, quite uh, kind of inventive ways that people get hold of it. And some of it's kind of the obvious roots of bent screws and da 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 but otherwise yeah prisons are full of drugs if i'm honest and they you know it's never going to change i don't think i had a friend who was a biohazard cleaner and the stories he told me about people weaponizing their poo and all kinds of stuff did you experience similar similar no one ever chucked any at me um but obviously is uh, when I look back now, I, I'm not really sure what was actually going on in High Down. I was a biohazard cleaner there for close enough to three years. People used to regularly just go on a mission and stay in their cell and decorate the entire cell with with shit. day after day after day after day. And the thing about it is, officers can't can't get involved in that because of health and safety so they just have to let them get on with it and they legally have to keep feeding them every day so there's an endless supply i went i did a a a dirty protest job it was in healthcare in high down and the guy had been in there for close enough to three weeks and i kind of had to kind of tip my cap to him because he had literally done every surface in the entire cell including the ceiling and even as a biohazard cleaner in a hazmat suit goggles mask everything you've you can get doing ceilings is not great fun because eventually something is going to creep in somewhere or drip on you or whatever uh, he did a good job this guy we had to take a buffer a, a, a floor buffer to try and get the feces off the floor it was an amazing job, and I, like I say, I, I I think fair play. He went to work, this guy, and he he did a a good job in what he was trying to achieve. How did you last three years in that job? <laughs> well, 
I think I have one major advantage, which is a kind of um, it's a, an after effect of my accident. I have no sense of smell and I have no sense of taste. What? And that's been for over nine years now. Even now? Yeah. And I I know that it will never return. So in, I used to call myself the biohazard king in High Down because I will just pile into anything and everything. To be honest, I would have done that anyway. Things like that. They, you know, some people are, are very susceptible to it. I'm not. Um, and so, yeah, I used to get stuck in. And so if you've got no taste and smell, do you still eat the same things or did it change? I do eat the same things and I use my memory and, <laughs> I, and um, I, I, I like the feel, the texture of good food, like good food from good places. I, it's difficult to explain, but. I, I still get something. I mean, people have said to me over over the last few years, why do you even bother eating? And I'm like, well, I have to stay alive. Would you like me to just pop off? You know, I, it, I've, there are moments, I, I did used to love a good meal in a good restaurant and there are, I had one the other night, a very good meal. And even though I couldn't taste it, I thoroughly enjoyed it because it was good quality food. And so I still get a little something from it. and um, That's fascinating. So you're saying that, like, if, let's say you have a Sunday roast. Yeah, nothing. You start to eat it, but you can you can go back and remember what it tastes like. And does Absolutely. That yeah, and the good thing about something like that, for example, you can ignore all the bad Sunday dinners you had that didn't quite pan out. <laughs> and you can focus on the best one ever. <laughs> So, yeah, you know, I tried to find a silver lining in in that cloud and it did take me quite a while to really stop kind of being, I wasn't whining and moaning about it. There's no point. No one gets it, but I'm more or less over it now. And the, the thing is, you have to get over it. It's a fact of my life. So I just live with it. Do you have to be extra careful that you don't eat something that previously, when you ate it, it would have warned you that it wasn't to be eaten? Ah, I should be, but actually I'm not. I just think I'll be all right. And so I I did get food poisoning in, in high down on my second sentence. Um, but actually what I ate was some um, some quiche. And I should have known by kind of looking at it, it was kind of watery. And it was actually in the week that I was sentenced to 17 years. And I just tried to look on the bright side. I thought, well, at least you didn't eat this the day before you were sentenced, because that would have been a horrific sweatbox journey. I was really sick for about 24 hours. But no, I just take my chances. And What about these short TV shows where they make them eat? you know, insects and stuff. Would you have an advantage? Oh, yeah, or? because I would eat that stuff anyway. <laughs> I've eaten, you know, I've eaten uh, snails and frog's legs. I've had giraffe steak, uh, water buffalo steak. I, I don't mind. I've eaten snake. I've eaten crocodile and alligator. So a few insects, yeah. Good source of protein. What was prison like during the pandemic? <sighs> yeah, it was kind of chaos um the prison service from the top down didn't really have a clue what to do and what they were doing 
But when you look at it, neither did the government. So why should they be any different? I was I was in isolation. I, I'm clinically vulnerable to COVID because I have to take immunosuppressants for my illness. And so I was fairly well isolated for the first lockdown and um, I just got on with my studies for my health and safety um, tickets. All right, so this was the, the period of time in your life you reflected and decided to go on the right path? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there were long periods during almost from the very start of the first sentence yeah, I would say that it was always there much more than any thoughts of going back to what I'd been doing. I, you know, I came to prison in a terrible state. That certainly played its part. I'll, I'll even tell you this. When I came out of hospital before I was arrested in 2014, I spoke to some friends who could have got me uh, any sort of job. I said to my girlfriend, I'm getting out. I'm getting out of it. I cannot, I can't go to prison. That's it. It's done for me. Obviously, I got arrested and, and I went to prison. I, I served over eight and a half years the second time. Pretty much from the get-go, I, I realized and I, I, I knew that it was game up for me. I knew I was going to lose everything again. That was by the by, but what I'd done to my my daughter again i i realized that i she would have been fully justified in not forgiving me the second time was she visiting you throughout it your daughter she was yeah i mean she did forgive me to to whatever extent my daughter kind of plays her cards close to her chest but we are very close and i I'm very grateful for that because, like I say, she didn't have to forgive me. She, she you know, once bitten, twice shy, I guess, and um, she did. And I, yeah, we we stayed in contact all throughout. Obviously, there was a period during lockdown where she was in her third year at university. She's now a nurse. And um, congratulations, thank you. And uh, yeah, I mean, I I think I said this before. My daughter is doing well for herself in her life. And let's be honest about it. It's in spite of me, not because of me. And But I've always been there for her. I'm there for her now. She knows how much I love her. And um, she's done well. And I'm I'm very happy for her. People say you must be really proud of her. I don't necessarily buy into that. I, I'm, I'm happy for her. I'm not proud. It's kind of a bit of a, a mix of words, but yeah, of course I'm proud for her. She's done well and I'm glad. So I understand these factors motivated you to reform, but what changed internally? <sighs> there are there are some, I guess, one or two more superficial things. I, I'm not getting any younger I remember hearing a lot of times during my first sentence and and bear in mind I went to prison the first time when I was 30 and the older guys then would say, oh, it's a young man's game, all this, it's not for us. There is an element of truth in that and I started to feel it within me during my second sentence. 
ultimately i just got to the point where and i say it even now i i i'm actually scared to go back to prison i'm i'm petrified if i'm honest i i can't do another day and i i'm i'm doing everything in my power to make sure it doesn't happen um and i think that to get to that stage psychologically it took a a, a bit of time but by the sort of last couple of years of the sentence i've just finished i knew it's over you've lost everything you've lost all this time and not just that i am aware even though i've kind of laughed in its face i am aware that i am capable of a lot of positive things and now is the time that i'm going to really strive to to reach that and it's happening and i hope it continues to happen i have i have plenty to give and um i want to start doing a bit of that now and uh maybe if you want to call it a bit of payback yeah fine let's call it that did coming out as a reformed person did that give you gate fever the pressure no it didn't as it goes and i'll i'll explain why when I was released the first time, I'd done eight and a half years and I happened to be released on a Friday and I was taken in a sweat box from High Point North to High Point because there's no release from North. And it was a Friday and unfortunately for the guys around me, there were about 25 people being released that day. We were all in a holding room together, um very quickly most of these guys just started kicking off screaming and shouting and kicking the door as it turned out i was probably one of the last four or five guys left and it had been a probably about three hours and a guy came and sat next to me on a bench and said are you being released and i said yeah and he said why aren't you going mad these lots should let us out they're holding us again you know it's blah, blah, blah. I said, mate, listen, let me tell you the most important thing I learned in my eight and a half years inside. It's a simple thing, patience. I said, I'm going home today, so are you. I can sit here for another couple of hours. They've held me for eight and a half years. What's <laughs> another few hours? And that was, that really was probably the most important thing I learned. So the second time, no gate fever. Every day is a day. It's a 24-hour period. Um, I spent my last six months back in closed prison on the second sentence. I I can't really go too deeply into why that happened. Um, but, yeah, I just patiently did it, and eventually I was released, and, yeah. You had an affair with a governor grade. After, on my first sentence, after she put it all over me. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Um, I can't say a huge amount about it, um, but I will say this. I was in a certain prison during my first sentence. I worked for a certain person, and that person, uh, we used to talk. I never really, I didn't actually think anything of it. This was my boss. We talked. Um, 
And then one day she just came to see me and said, I remember her words. She said, can I ask you a question? And I said, of course. She said, do you think it's really wrong that I can't stop thinking about you? And I was a, I was a bit taken aback because I hadn't seen that coming at all. And um, I can't, I'm not, I don't remember how I answered that question, but uh, yeah, things kind of went from there and... Um, and she ended up being quite heavily invested in me. I never got her to break any rule in terms of contraband. I I would never do that. But we did have a thing. I did see her a couple of times when I was coming out on home leaves towards the end of my sentence. And then she made it clear to me that she actually wanted to leave her husband and her teenage children. And that's where I had to say, whoa, hold on a minute. I'm not about that. I don't want to break up a family. I wouldn't even be doing this if you, I mean, okay, it was a moment of male weakness, if you like, that I responded to her, but I didn't want to break up a family. And, um, and that's kind of where it, kind of ended I I just said look I'm finishing a long sentence I don't need to walk into a an adulterous kind of she wanted to get us a place together and I just said no I'm sorry I can't do that I can't so that was that so when I saw situations like that arise they usually played out with someone snitching them out so they could try and have a get the woman yeah or just jealousy you know that kind of thing did you manage to keep it top secret is that yeah you know i've always had this uh quite simple understanding of what is a secret a secret is something that you never tell anybody and i've carry enough of those anyway (laughs) from my previous life i have said to people in the past I know things that would really wreck a lot of lives and put people away for a ridiculous amount of time. Those things will go with me to my grave. I never told anybody in the prison that I was having a a dalliance with this lady. And the upshot of that is that we never got caught and nobody uh, paid any kind of penalty for it. So you only got out six months ago, man. Yeah, six months, yeah. Are you still adjusting? Do you know, it's fine. Uh, I'm okay. I I didn't really have too much to kind of deal with. Uh, People do ask me this question. I've been asked if I'm institutionalized. I'm not. I function. I can look after myself. The hardest part about getting released this time was definitely the the situation with probation. Um, For the first kind of three months, they really had their foot on my neck and the organized crime prevention order to a certain extent was difficult as well. Although I have to be honest, not as difficult as the, as the probation situation. Um, being homeless was kind of difficult. Probation was shoving me here, shoving me there. And I had to be there because it was my license conditions. Um, it was very unsettling and, and, I had to be surrounded by people who were essentially the the exact kind of people that I thought I'd left behind forever when I walked out of the gate. And that was fine, but I didn't want it. You know, I wanted to just be kind of left alone. I wanted them to believe me, and it took some time. 
at one point, um, the, the organised crime prevention police asked me to volunteer to go on tag. And essentially, they didn't believe that I was working. So they thought, right, how can we find out? Uh, it was kind of a brief conversation with my probation officer. I just said, look, unless there's a court order, I'm not walking onto building sites with a tag round my ankle. I'm doing a job. It, you're trying to embarrass me. I said, tell the police, by all means, follow me 24-7. I've got nothing to hide from them. They can come and wake me up in the middle of the night but I'm not doing their job for them. I don't hate the police as it happens. They do. They are the police. I've been nicked a couple of times. I don't hate them, but I'm certainly not going to help them do their job anytime soon. So it was put to me. I said, no way. It's never been mentioned again. So you turned to TikTok, why? <laughs> uh, do you know what? I'm not even sure I can sort of definitively answer that question <laughs> now. I'd heard a lot about TikTok before I was released and I hadn't heard much positive about it. I'd heard that like kids were doing crazy stunts and hurting themselves and it was getting a lot of bad press from where I was listening to. I used to listen to Five Live a lot. Um, I read the papers. But I came out and actually I, I... I decided that maybe TikTok was a way I wanted to gauge um, interest, potential interest in my first book. And so I asked my then girlfriend's daughter to set up TikTok for me. I had no clue how to use it. Some would say I still don't have much of a clue, but I get by. And uh, it, it, it worked out well in that I did get quite quickly a fair amount of people saying, yeah, you should do that book. I'd buy it. And now at this point in time, I think I have something like uh, it's over five and a half thousand followers. I do lives. I get a lot of really, really genuinely good um, comments and feedback. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of surprised. And people are saying, look, there's something in this for you. There's really something in it. And I'm the last person to believe it. <laughs> but yeah, if you, I guess in, in a sense, TikTok is almost by mistake, but I'm running with it. Uh, well, I'm walking with it. I'm not running with it, but we'll see. I'm, I'm open-minded and um, I'm, I, I feel like what's going on. I'm lucky to have my job, but I'm also open to, I there is I have one or two modest ambitions with with it all and we'll see. Would you say that having an online community nourishes you spiritually? I think to an ex yeah, I do actually. I I I never thought I would say that, but <laughs> yeah, I mean I've got a a a, a real dedicated bunch of followers and they are my friends and they are my supporters and you know i've had today so many messages of of support and well wishing and you know cuz we've known for a little while that i'd be seeing you today and um yeah it's it is it, it does help me i it's not that i need it 
but I certainly embrace it and and I'm I'm really happy because I give something to those people as well. They like hearing me speak. They say that I'm honest and open. Um, and I guess to whatever extent on social media, that's kind of not unique, but it's it's not the norm. There's a lot of fakery out there. Yeah, your authenticity resonates. And shout out to all your TikTokers. Yes, all of you. You've been brilliant with me and I appreciate it. Thank you. So... There was a couple of things. Um, earlier on, you said that the pain of the catheter was nothing compared to certain other situations you've been through in your life. Yeah. Could you give us a story there? Well, I, could, I guess um, if I talk about physical pain and then I will talk about emotional pain, the physical pain, I I can't... I, I, don't really want to say a, a huge amount about this but I found myself in a situation in a in another country where I ended up <clears throat> I ended up being stabbed with probably just a small screwdriver I had to essentially fight for my life in that situation I ended up being stabbed in the neck the face the nose just outside the eye shoulder one or two other places on my body was it a robbery it was a robbery and it wasn't a robbery of me but i i was in a certain situation where i was with somebody who was robbed and um and i i didn't actually try and um intervene per se because it was in his hotel room i was down the landing but I did walk in to the aftermath of what had happened to him. Uh, one of the guys there took a couple of shots at me as he ran past. Was kind of, I was, yeah, I was in a certain place in a in a large kind of suite. He took a couple of shots at me. He missed, um, and then this other guy started just attacking me, and he was kind of wild and. I remember he was strong and I had to fight him off and yeah I got I I don't I don't think it was a knife because some of these wounds were quite small but I had to get out of there quickly and um I I paid a lot of money for somebody to remove me from the scene and I then had to get myself patched up to get a flight and yeah and it's all in in the past now there are no um yeah it that's probably what i would like to say about it it was a long time ago uh it's yeah i was in a lot of pain i had to take a very long taxi drive through the night and um yeah it hurt <laughs> and you said there was one where it was emotional pain yeah um i think i mean you could probably pick one or two maybe more but I think um, the emotional pain of the beginning of my second sentence I I was really acutely aware of how I'd let my daughter down and how I'd let her wider family down because you know how family works if my daughter's unhappy 
everyone's a bit unhappy, you know, and they're trying to support. And and at the same time, as I mentioned before, I I feared for my girlfriend. Um, I know how how the system works, and I I knew that they were going to be gunning for her. They had very little. On top of that, trying to kind of gather myself with brain damage and all the mess around my my personal self. It was a long, hard emotional recovery from all of that, and it it might sound a bit of an exaggeration to some people, but I would say that I didn't really feel recovered enough from all of that until I'd probably served around about five years of my sentence. I was um, I was in a bad way for a long time, and so that emotional pain was a long, drawn-out uh, fight, if you like. Is there anything you feel that I've left out that you'd like to say? No, I, I, I don't think so, Sean. Um, I, I would like to thank, if that's all right with you, uh, I'd like to thank Simon and Rachel, not just for being here now, but Simon has been a, a massive support to me for the last couple of months um i would i would like to thank my there's every possibility that my daughter may choose not to watch this i think she probably will i'd like to thank her for sticking by sticking by her dad who failed again but um my, I would just like to say, actually, that I do have some really positive intentions now and the, the crime stuff is behind me. It's done. It's history. I would ultimately like to get my books on, on the shelves. I would like to potentially do some form of media work and I would like to do... I, I really want to start, when the time is right, doing the circuit of speaking to younger people who may be about to tread this notoriously um, difficult and and incorrect path. Um, and I would also add to that people who may already be on that path and maybe one or two of them could be steered to a, a, a better way. If those opportunities arise, I will definitely be giving them serious, serious consideration. Uh, there are lots of other people I could sit here and thank. They know who they are. And, um, you know, I've been very, very fortunate that I've been given a lot of support and a lot of love. And there are times the the kind of person I am where I feel that actually I don't deserve much of that, if any, um, but they keep assuring me that I do, and so I guess it will sink in eventually. Well, Simon and Rachel would like to say something to you, so I'm just going to have to stop a second. All right, so we've all come out for the reveal. We've got Jen, Ziggy, Simon, Rachel. <laughs> Simon, take it away. Well, this is our surprise, what we've kept from Piers for a few weeks, and... Uh, it is down to this young lady here that it has happened as well. She is the artist that has done these two pictures very kindly for me and as a present from both of us to peers. 
Okay. And all will be revealed now. Would you like to say a few words? Um, only that it was um, really difficult, you yeah. know, on the time yeah. and everything to do two paintings. But um, I'm and just so glad we achieved it. And thank and you for the big headaches and all the phone calls <laughs> and, and all the texts and, and the running around my house. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and the but big it's a secret pleasure to because, you know, you, you, have you've actually done. been so near them, it's been unreal. And <laughs> our, our, our idea is for one, um, for peers to choose one to keep. Yeah. And the other one, we'd like to go towards the proceeds of the book oh. and but, to be auctioned or however you want to do yeah, it. Yeah, but the only thing is, it might be too hard for him to decide, you know, in the next few days. And if that's the case, then I'm prepared to let him have them both and I will copy another one up. <laughs> <gonna do>. oh. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, how's that? You, well, you know you've you just shot yourself in the foot with that. Yeah, 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 yeah. they're not real. Well, you, know? you wait till it goes well, out on TikTok. You wait till it goes yeah. out, the podcast, Sean's. <laughs> And then there's going to be another 200 people that want another painting. Well, I, I really would like to do but, like six by six foot of you, literally get you. Look, we could always do prints. That's yeah. what we decided. Mm. People okay. want prints. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, Make more money for the book. That's amazing. That's the cause. I probably should have a look. Yeah, I think you should. <laughs> exactly. right. well. yeah, but have a look. Take that. Well, okay. So I'm just going to get up and see. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. I mean, yeah. That's amazing, Rachel. You should probably think about doing art as a job. I really appreciate that. That's amazing. Oh, and is, ten days you were bang under pressure. Yeah, but this this free this was freestyled and I was ready to bin this. There's a story behind it. Is that part. why you made me show you the tattoo on my back in the restaurant the other day? <laughs> Very <laughs> good. And it was me getting do you remember I said to you on the phone, what does it say oh, across your yeah. chest? Oh, can you send it to me? And I I'm said. thinking mate, I, said, I, don't, I don't want to get it. How many times do I have to tell it? you? I was I've been listening to <laughs> you. Oh, no, I know. <laughs> Well, guys, I, I really appreciate that. That's amazing. Um, yeah, you're quite talented, Rachel, aren't you? <laughs> Where are you going to put it? You've got to choose one first. Yeah. <laughs> well, if it's hard, then you don't you know, spot, just, but it can happen both. You don't have to answer we'll that Yeah, I don't have think I can it. answer no, it now. No. I, something immediately comes to mind, um, but I'm going to keep that to yeah. myself for the minute, if that's all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. yeah you've you'll got be, plenty of time to decide, you know. So if you want to keep them both, I'll forge my own work again. <laughs> yeah, let's also talk about that yeah, another yeah. time. Because, <laughs> yeah, wow, thank you. Thank you so You're much. Welcome. Mm, you're so welcome. <laughs> it's really good of you. Don't let him put you under pressure <laughs> like that. Just <laughs> dry one up the Mui. Brilliant. Thank you guys. Thank you for that. All right. So huge thank you to everyone who's come in today, joining us, and wow, just blown away by this last act of kindness. And Pierce, especially spending all this time with us, you know, like I said, authentic. Just these stories are so inspirational. You got the young people out there. Proper deterrent. I hope you do get to speak in the schools and stuff like that. Yeah. All too. of Pierce's links are in the description box below this video. TikTok, the crowdfunding for the book, and any anything else, any other links you send us will be down there. Thank you. And um, yeah, so and do you have a link as well for your art, Rachel? 
I, I only like on Instagram. Okay, that's we'll it. put that down there yeah, as well. Lovely. Thank yeah, if you you've got much. anything, Simon, you want us to put down there. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. All right, like to finish with a hug. Oh, no. Oh, no. Right, <laughs> oh sure. Oh, yeah. Really appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Having me on. Yeah. Great. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you too. Cheers, Simon. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Congratulations to our podcast, John Sutton, whose book, HMP Manchester Prison Officer, is now available worldwide. We've done a podcast with John and what he went through with the Freemason prison officers working against him, putting his life on the line, is mind-boggling. So the subtitle is, I Survived Terrorist, Murderers, Rapists and Freemason Officer Attacks in Strange Ways and Wormwood Scrubs. John G. Sutton. So this book includes drugs, riot shanks, dirty protests, violent Freemason guards, self-mutilation and suicides. Welcome to the brutal truth about life as a prison officer. So with a career spanning 10 years inside of the walls of Britain's most infamous prisons, Manchester Strange Rays and London's Wormwood Scrubs, John Sutton has experienced it all. Attacked by the Soho vampire and insane killer, assaulted by the Cambridge rapist, threatened by the IRA, beaten, persecuted and prosecuted by Freemason officers. John Sutton survived to reveal the heart-hitting truth in his jaw-dropping memoir. From the get-go, he just takes you right inside into a conflict and you just cannot put the book down all the way through. If you've ever wondered what a career in the prison service is really like, then this searingly honest account will take you onto the landings housing Britain's most dangerous prisoners. Accompany John as he carries the keys that lock up murderers, rapists, gangsters, paedophiles, terrorists, addicts, and the mentally ill. As well as the ever-present threat from the inmates, John had to endure a conspiracy of violence from his own colleagues who were Freemasons. Nothing can be more dangerous in prison than the staff not having your back. Horrifying, harrowing and humorous, John's book will take you on an unforgettable journey into a netherworld of drugs, violence and hostile Freemasons. It's even got the Masonic compass symbol on the cover. So check it out, available worldwide. John Sutton's book, HMP Manchester Prison Officer. It's an e-book, paperback and audiobook. I kill you! I yeah! a knife and a cosh and all that, like yeah! And he's looking at me, and we went white. Then he's gone, like. <laughs> what is it about a tough guy that fascinates us? Imagine I'm hearing that, I'm thinking I'm not going down today. If I go down today, yeah, I'm dead. We're bringing you the very best of our interviews with Britain's hardest men. They made the mistake of bringing. Billy Cubs, iron bars and knives to a gunfight. No Rules Fighter Bash, Stephen the Devil French and my best friend, Wildman. Over two hours of terrifying tales of punch-ups, stabbings. That's what happens in that world. You, you leave people long enough, they get enough rope to hang themselves. Attempted murders and exceptional all-round hardness. 